Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's episode of the Peter Schiff Show podcast is sponsored by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. You can schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash gold. Well, today was the final trading day of the month. And of course, when you finish up September, you also finish up the third quarter. And this was a relatively weak month. In fact, this was the worst September since 2011. The S&P ended up down about 4% for the month. Dow didn't quite do as bad. It was only down about 2%. The NASDAQ, the bigger loser, down about 5% on the month. Russell 2000 down about 3.5%. But even though it was a down month. It was an up quarter. The S&P did gain about eight and a half percent during the third quarter. Dow not quite as good, about seven and a half percent. The Nasdaq still managed an 11 percent gain during the third quarter. And bringing up the rear again, the Russell 2000 up just four and a half percent on a quarter. Again, I keep pointing out the weakness in this index. This is the index that is most closely correlated with the domestic economy with the U.S. uh, businesses, and it continues to be the weakest index. And I think for good reason, because I think the strength of the domestic economy is being drastically overstated. And the Russell 2000 shines a little light on that. But of course, it wasn't just stocks that were up on the quarter. Everything was up. And what was driving the gains was the Fed. It was the Federal Reserve's commitment to keep interest rates low and to continue to monetize debt that drove the gains in the equity markets. Gold also up on the quarter, up about 6%, though it was down 4% during the month of September. So pretty similar to the types of declines that you saw in the S&P. Silver was the biggest loser on the month, down 18%. But despite that drop, 
silver was still up 27% on the quarter, outperforming any of the major stock market indexes, including the NASDAQ. The dollar also was up on the month, but down on the quarter. The dollar index gained just under 2% in September, but despite that gain, it was still down just over 3.5% on the quarter. So pretty much September was a counter-trend move in every asset. Everything that was up on the quarter, well, it was down on the month and, and vice versa. Bonds relatively flat. Very little movement on the month in bond yields. They were up a little bit. I think the yield on the 30-year moved up on the quarter from about 1.4 to about 1.45. I am still looking for a big move up in interest rates and down in bond prices. That move continues to elude me, uh, but I do believe it is coming. And I think the longer it takes to happen, the bigger it's going to be when it does happen. In fact, I think a lot of fireworks will be unleashed in the fourth quarter. I think it can be a particularly uh, negative quarter for the dollar, maybe even for the bond market as well and the stock market. In fact, I read an article. It was an op-ed piece by Stephen Roach a couple of days ago. And Stephen is one of the mainstream guys that I you know, have the most respect for, at least as far as their outlook or his outlook, as I've followed Stephen Roach for a long time. And a lot of the stuff that he said, I've agreed with. Of course, he's always been known as one of the, you know, the big bears on Wall Street. But he offered a, uh, an op-ed in which he speculated that he thought the U.S. dollar could collapse by 35% in 2021, which would be a massive decline. 35% in the world of currencies is, is enormous, especially to happen in one year. And this is from a guy who's, you know, maybe on the fringe of the mainstream, but still within the mainstream. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm way beyond the mainstream when I talk. But the fact that Roach is now saying that he sees the potential and a real potential, not just a an outside chance, like a long shot, like a real potential for a 35% decline in the U.S. dollar. Right now, the U.S. dollar index is about just under 94. And if it were to decline 35% from here, you're talking about a dollar index barely above 60. The all-time record low for the dollar index was just above 70. That was back in 2008. So a 35% decline would crash through that low substantially to get down to 60. And I don't disagree with anything that Stephen Rhodes wrote. It's highly possible that that could happen in 2021. And if it doesn't happen in 2021, well, then it may happen by 2022. But ultimately, I think the dollar index could go a lot lower than 60. I wouldn't be surprised to see it down at 40. I think there is tremendous downside risk. And Stephen Roach specifically pointed to the current account deficits, the trade deficits, the lack of savings, uh, the, the Fed monetary policy. He blamed all of the correct factors for what would ultimately end up driving the dollar down. Of course, one of the things that could happen during the fourth quarter that could influence all the markets is going to be the outcome of the presidential election and the outcome of the congressional elections as to whether or not it's going to be the Republicans or the Democrats that end up controlling Senate. And if it's a clean sleep uh, by the Democrats, that certainly could have some big implications for the markets other than 
the Republicans maintaining control, I think both are bearish for the dollar. I mean, I think the dollar is going to go down regardless of who the next president is and, and which party controls Congress. I mean, that should be abundantly clear uh, based on last night's debates, right? Anybody who who harbors any kind of hope that Donald Trump is going to turn the situation around, I mean, you certainly had those hopes dashed as a result of uh, last night's debate, which I am going to talk about extensively on this podcast. But it's clear to me that the policies that are going to be rammed through a Democratic Congress and signed by President Biden will put even more downward pressure than the downward pressure that would be applied from Trump and a Republican Congress. But again, all that too could have implications for the stock market. Clearly, a Biden victory is far more negative for stocks, specifically because he is promising tremendous increases in corporate taxes and on the taxes that corporate shareholders pay on their dividends and capital gains. So the effective tax rate on corporate earnings will rise dramatically in a Biden administration. And so clearly that is a big negative for the U.S. stock market. The only positive for the stock market in a Biden administration will be that the economy is so bad that the Fed will be doing even more money printing to monetize the larger debts produced by Biden and the Democrats than the money they're going to print to monetize the somewhat less enormous uh, deficits produced by the Republicans. And, and so it's all that money printing that may make stock prices go up. But in real terms, stock prices will fall even further because those monetary policies will be more bullish for gold and silver than it will for U.S. stocks. And of course, it will be far more bullish for global stocks than it will for domestic stocks. So I think however uh, the election ends up I think you're much better off being invested outside the U.S., foreign stocks, foreign markets, uh, gold, silver, anything that is unrelated uh, to U.S. economy or the U.S. dollar. In fact, before I start talking about the actual debate, and maybe I should you know, put the word debate kind of in quotes. I mean, it really wasn't a debate. I don't even know if I'd call it an argument. Maybe it was kind of uh, like a, a schoolyard confrontation of name calling or, or, or something like that. But before I actually get into the spectacle that we witnessed, I want to talk a little bit about the backstory that preceded the, the debates. And that was the New York Times article that came out over the weekend about Donald Trump's taxes. And of course, one of the big issues from the 2016 campaign was Donald Trump's refusal to make public his 1040 tax returns. And he's been president now for, what, close to four years. And those returns have still not been released. Now, I didn't like the way Donald Trump handled the issue of his tax returns initially, right? He said that the reason he didn't want to release them was because he was under audit. And he, like, he was dying to release them. Now, I really want to release my returns, but, you know, I can't do it because I'm under audit. And, you know, I just, as soon as the audit is over, well, then I'll release them. Uh, and that seemed like a BS excuse then. And it seems like even a bigger BS excuse now because he's basically hiding behind the same excuse. He's still under audit. It's four years later and the audit's still ongoing. And the problem is if he doesn't release his tax returns now, even if he releases them after the next election, well, it has no significance anymore. I mean, he keeps promising to release the returns once his audit is finished. But of course, what difference does it make once we have uh, the next election? 
But I think it does make the president look like he has something to hide because clearly you can release your tax returns when you're under audit. There's no rule that says you can't. In fact, people that have the type of income that Donald Trump has um, are generally audited every year. I mean, you would think the IRS would want to spend a lot of time there because that's where they have the chance of getting the most money if there's something wrong. Uh, So there may never be a point in time where Donald Trump is not under audit, uh, which means he would never release his taxes. But of course, what difference does it make if he releases them after the election? Because now he can't run for a third term, so it won't matter what's on those tax returns. But what I think Trump should have done is, A, been more honest from the beginning and just said, look, I don't want to release my tax return. I don't think any presidential candidate should be releasing tax returns. Uh, I don't think it's anybody's business. I think tax returns should be kept private. I have the required financial disclosures. And so you can see my assets, you can see my liabilities, but I don't think personal tax returns should be released. I I, I personally, I don't believe that either. I don't think any candidate should be releasing uh, their tax returns, but they have been doing it. I'm not really sure how long the tradition goes back because of course, you know, the founding fathers didn't even envision something like uh, an income tax or a tax return. So clearly- There's no requirement uh, that you release those returns in order to run for president. But I think what Trump should have done instead of, you know, pretending that, oh, I paid all these taxes and and there may have been some years where he paid a lot of taxes. I would have proudly uh, uh, stated that I paid very little in taxes. I mean, that is the goal, right? It's not what you make, but what you keep. I mean, if he's selling himself as being a smart businessman, when the smart businessman try to minimize his taxes? I mean, what kind of fool would not do that? You know, and, you know, all these liberal hypocrites that want to pretend that there's something wrong with Donald Trump using the tax code to minimize his tax liability. Every one of us does that. Everybody uses whatever deductions and exemptions are available. In fact, most people hire accountants to do their taxes. Why do they do that? because they think the accountant will save them money, because they think the accountant might know about some deductions that they might otherwise miss. And so they wanna make sure to pay the lowest tax possible. And so they pay extra for a professional to do their taxes so that they can pay less tax. I mean, if you just wanna pay the maximum amount, you don't need an accountant. You just take all your income and just pay taxes on it. The accountants help you reduce your taxable income, right? Because that's what's being taxed, not your gross income, but what's actually taxable. And the accountant can help you minimize your taxable income. I mean, even uh, Biden now, I read some article, he was getting some flack because he wrote a book and he ran his book income through an S-corp that he set up. And by doing that, uh, the article said that he reduced his taxes over a number of years by about half a million dollars by avoiding the self-employment tax. Sure, why not? Of course, who wouldn't do that? Anybody tries to minimize their taxes. And if anybody says otherwise, they're a hypocrite. And so rather than pretending uh, and bragging about all the taxes you're paying, just brag about the fact that you're smart enough to minimize the amount of tax that you did pay. Now, you still pay taxes, uh, but you know any money that you send to government is just wasted. I mean, to the extent that you don't have to send money to Washington, if you actually can invest that money productively in the private sector, the country actually benefits more from private investment than government spending. Now, it would be nice if by limiting the amount of money you send to Washington, that would limit government spending, right? If we all found ways to reduce the tax revenue sent to Washington, 
if Washington responded to that reduction in tax revenue by cutting government spending, then it would be a great success. Unfortunately, because of the Federal Reserve, whatever we don't send in taxes, the Fed just prints the difference. And so they just print up the money that we're no longer spending. Now, personally, yes, I think that paying for government through inflation is worse than paying for it through taxation. But it is not the obligation of any citizen to pay tax. In fact, nobody has a a patriotic obligation to pay one penny more than they legally owe. And what you legally owe is not a function of what you earn, but what is left over after you use all the available deductions and credits that the law allows. And organizing your affairs so as to maximize your write-offs is not criminal activity. And Donald Trump should not try to pretend otherwise. He should have been more upfront uh, with that. And so now, you know, like so many other lies he gets caught up in, you know, you get in a lie and now you have to keep lying and lying. And then it looks more and more ridiculous, which is, you know, now how he is reacting to the story. I mean, the big news of the story was that for the last couple of years, not the last two, the, the year that Trump was elected president, and I think the subsequent year, he only paid $750 in taxes. And, you know, I have a feeling that that's an accurate statement that the New York Times made. I mean, they haven't released the documentation. They haven't released their sources, but they seem pretty confident that that's the number. And one of the reasons that I think that's the number and that it's correct is that when Donald Trump was asked, you know, is it true that you only paid $750 in federal income tax in those years instead of directly answering the question, which would have been, no, it's not true. I mean, that would have been a very easy answer if it wasn't true. No, I didn't pay $750. That's your question. Did I pay that? No. End of story, right? But no, instead of doing that, he dodged the question and started talking about all the taxes he paid, which of course could include other income taxes, New York City tax, New York State tax, other federal taxes uh, that he might have paid uh, that did not, uh, you know, count as part of your federal income tax. And when the, the question was ignored, the follow-up question again said on federal income tax. And then the second time Donald Trump responded by saying, I paid millions of dollars uh, in federal income tax. Now, I hope that is the case. I hope that he didn't actually pay $750 because now, you know, he could be caught in a lie because now if the return is in fact made public, if the New York Times releases their source to actually show uh, that he paid $750 in taxes, well, then that's that's another lie. But it would have been good if the president had a different approach because he could have said, sure, what's, what's wrong? I have only paid $750. I mean, that's $750 too much. I would have liked to have paid zero. But I couldn't do anything. I had I had a little bit of income and I paid that tax. What is the problem with that? I mean, they're trying to infer that because he's not paying a lot of uh, taxes, that he really doesn't have a lot of income. Well, a lot of the deductions that you get are non-cash. When you have all the properties, all the real estate that Donald Trump has, and you get to depreciate that property, that depreciation reduces your income. I mean, the New York Times is acting as if all these businesses are losing money. They're not losing money from a cash flow perspective, but from a depreciating perspective, they are. But, you know, a lot of these buildings, as you're depreciating them, they're actually appreciating in value, right? A lot of property is going up as the IRS gets you to write down the supposed depreciation that isn't even happening. And of course, Donald Trump had a lot of lost carry forwards 
uh, from the casinos that failed. And that's a big bone of contention of this audit, whether or not some $70, $80 million refund he got one year based on those losses, whether or not he really was entitled to it. And apparently if the IRS ends up you know, ruling against that deduction, the president will have to pay the taxes plus interest and penalties, which at this point, I think, run in excess of $100 million. In fact, one thing that's very common for people in the real estate business is as their real estate is appreciating in the real world and they are writing off the depreciation of that property, they actually go out and borrow more money. They borrow out the appreciation and none of that money is taxable because you only pay taxes on money you earn. So if I get money by borrowing it, that's not income to me. And so I can pull out a lot of cash and not pay any taxes. So for example, let's say I buy a piece of property for $100 million and it becomes a $200 million property. It doubles in value. If I actually sold the property and had a $100 million capital gain, assuming I didn't roll it into another purchase and do a 1031 exchange, I would realize a $100 million gain and I would have to pay tax on it. But if instead of selling the property, I just borrow the 100 million or maybe borrow 50 million against the property and never sell it, that money is not taxable at all. So that's how somebody in real estate could spend a lot of money, buy a lot of stuff, but not pay any taxes because they're borrowing money, they're not earning money. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. And then what happens is eventually when they do sell the property, as long as they just take the money and buy another piece of property, then they're not going to pay any capital gains taxes. And, you know, now they can borrow even more money as real estate continues to appreciate in price. And a lot of it is driven by inflation and the depreciation of the dollar. But while prices of property are going up and the owners of the property keep pulling out tax-free money, the same time they're writing off the losses because they're depreciating and appreciating assets. So there's all kinds of tax advantages associated with being in the real estate industry and being able to borrow tax-free and then write off the interest that you pay on your debt, depreciate the property that you own. I mean, one of the things that Biden is proposing is eliminating uh, the 1031 exchange, which would make it harder to do this. But what's happening with Donald Trump, that's the real estate industry. You know, I've had conversations with people about moving to Puerto Rico who are in real estate and they tell me, look, I don't need to move to Puerto Rico. Why? I don't pay any taxes now. I'm in real estate. In fact, most real estate people would think there was something wrong with you. If you were in real estate, you're a developer, you own a lot of property. And for some reason, you still ended up paying taxes, right? So the fact that Trump wasn't paying taxes just means he's he understands the real estate market. That's one of the major appeals. You don't like that? Change the law. I mean, that is one of the reasons I don't like uh, the income tax. I think we should abolish it. I don't think people uh, should benefit from the income tax because they're in real estate and other people who aren't in real estate don't have these advantages. Now, of course, everybody has the decision. If you like all the tax breaks, then go into real estate. But I don't think the government should be artificially channeling 
people to go into the real estate business because of the tax advantages. I don't think the government should advantage any industry. That's one of the mistakes we make. The best way to correct that is to abolish the income tax completely. Of course, nobody had a conversation like that uh, during this uh, farce of a debate. But the other angle that the New York Times was using was that, look, Donald Trump is not really a good businessman. His businesses are losing all this money when, in fact, the losses are accounting only, right? He's, he's getting real income. They pointed out his income from The Apprentice, which, of course, The Apprentice income can't be depreciated because it's money he earned from doing a television show. But he was able to use those non-cash losses generated by real estate holdings uh, to offset the, the cash income coming from The Apprentice and other you know carry forwards that he had. They also made a big deal about the fact that he has four or five hundred million in debt, which may not be a lot of debt in relation to the value of all the properties that are securing that debt. Now, I could imagine that a lot of Donald Trump's businesses are not doing well right now because he's in leisure and hospitality, hotels, golf courses. I mean, what the president is involved in has been hit pretty hard, I would imagine, by by COVID. And he no longer does The Apprentice, right? He got rid of that, and that was his biggest moneymaker. So he's not getting any cash for that. So I wouldn't doubt if maybe the the, the president's uh, business empire is, is having some having some difficulty. But I think had Trump been more upfront and more honest about his taxes, I mean, if I was running for president personally, I, I would not make a big deal of the fact that I'm trying to pay as little tax as possible. I would proudly state, yes, I'm trying to limit my taxes. I'm trying to do everything I can to give less money to government and to keep more money for myself, because I think the government doesn't do good with the money it takes from me. I think I can do better with my money. I can invest it better to grow the economy. And to the extent that I want to give it to charitable causes, I think that I could do a lot more good with private charity than the government will do with public charity. And speaking about business owners, if you're a business owner yourself, you don't need us to tell you that running a business is tough. You might be making it harder on yourself than necessary. Don't let QuickBooks and spreadsheets slow you down anymore. It's time to upgrade to NetSuite. So stop paying for multiple systems that don't give you the information that you need. Ditch the spreadsheets and the old software that you've outgrown. Now is the time to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle the world's number one cloud business system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and much more. Everything you need in one place instantaneously. Whether you're doing a million or a hundred million in revenue, save time and money with NetSuite. Join the over 21,000 companies using NetSuite right now. You know, I wish something like NetSuite was around When I was getting started, think of all of the time and money I could have saved uh, with a product like this. You know, when you're running a business these days, the government makes it much more difficult now to have employees. Uh, There's all kinds of rules and regulations. So you really need to run a tight ship. You need to minimize your costs. You need to minimize uh, your personnel. And having access to a product like NetSuite goes a long way to making that happen, keeping your business leaner and meaner and increasing the chances that it will succeed. So let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com gold. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com gold. netsuite.com gold. Anyway, I want to um, start talking 
about the debate itself. Although before I do hit on the debate, you know, one of the the topics in the debate was systemic racism. Of course, we knew that was coming, right? How could it not? But I actually want to talk about an article that I read on this topic before I actually get into the debate itself. And it had to do with the supposed existence of systemic racism in the appraisal industry. And what these articles and these studies are claiming is that homes in black neighborhoods are being appraised at lower values than similar homes in white neighborhoods. And they're saying, look, you know, if it's the same, you know, three bedroom, uh, four bath, uh, 2,500 square feet, you know, quarter acre, I mean, whatever it is, right? They're, they're looking at all the other supposed characteristics of the homes and they're saying, hey, look, the houses in the black neighborhoods are being appraised at a much lower value than the houses in the white neighborhoods. And number one, they're saying this is a negative, right? This is bad for blacks because the houses uh, have a lower value. And they're saying that it's because of racism, right? That the appraisers are just racist or there's something racist about the appraisal process. And that's why these homes are being appraised at a lower price. And so the government needs to step in and do something about it so that the appraisers come in at higher levels or maybe the taxpayers make up black homeowners with some kind of reparations for this by directly uh, sending money to blacks who own homes to make up for the fact that we're artificially um, reducing the value, which is is so insane. I mean, first of all, to say that it's a negative. So if you're saying a home in a black neighborhood cost $200,000, but a similar home in a white neighborhood cost $300,000, that's a benefit if you're looking to buy a home in a black neighborhood, right? You're going to get a big discount. So from the perspective of if I'm an African-American looking to buy a house in a black neighborhood, isn't it a good thing if the house has a lower appraised value? Because that means I can pay less money to buy it. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that housing is more affordable, right? Isn't that a good thing that housing is more affordable? So it's certainly not bad for the buyer. Now, from a point of view of a seller, if you have a house in a black neighborhood and you're looking to sell the house, well, that's when the value might be important to you. Or if you're trying to get a loan against your house, right? If you want to borrow money and you want to use your house as collateral, well, you can borrow more money if the house has a higher value. And I think that's what they're really pissed off about, that these lower appraisals are making it harder for blacks to go deeper into debt. Well, which might be a blessing in disguise. I mean, I think people shouldn't be levering up their homes like they're an ATM, but that apparently is considered to be a problem that blacks can't abuse their homes to the same degree that whites can because their houses are being undervalued because of racism. Of course, racism have absolutely nothing to do with it. The, the appraisers, generally when appraisers are hired, I mean, they don't want to underappraise the property. I mean, let's say the property is, is being appraised um, for a transaction, for a purchase, if the appraisal comes in really low, the transaction is not going to take place. You know, and if if there's an appraiser that constantly underappraises uh, properties simply because he's a racist, well, no one's going to hire that appraiser. I mean, you want to get a fair value, and of course, the banks want to make loans. Uh, the bigger, the better, but they want to make sure they have the collateral. And so, if they were getting uh, appraisers who are underappraising, they may be missing a lot of opportunities. I mean, if the if the borrower actually has the collateral 
that will allow you to make a loan. The bank wants to make the loan. So there is no incentive for anybody to just underreport the value of a house just because it's in a black neighborhood. Now, the, the most important aspect of the appraisal is comparable sales. I mean, it's not even like the cost of replacing the house, right? What is it? What, you know, what would it cost to buy the land? What would it cost to build the house? A lot of times that doesn't make a difference. The most important factor is the comps. Houses that are similar to the house being appraised, what did they sell for in the last six months, in the last year? And are there other houses on the market that are similar? And what are they offering? And how long have they been on the market? So all of this has to do with real sales. How can that actually be racist when it's basing the appraisal on other transactions? And one of these articles I read about, I think it was in Bloomberg, actually tried to claim that using comparables was what was racist. Because the, the, the guy tried to argue that by the, the sales that were comparable were already influenced by racism. And so once you have racism early on, you set a racist precedence that can never be broken. So even though the current appraisals aren't racist, the ones in the past were. And the ones in the past were the ones that resulted in the, the sales that are now being used as the comps, which is complete nonsense. I mean, the reason that these houses are less valuable in black neighborhoods is because of the other problems maybe associated with those neighborhoods. Maybe there's more crime there, right? Or, you know, people don't want to live there. Maybe the neighborhoods aren't as well kept. I mean, they're trying to say that they've adjusted for these other factors. They, they've adjusted for the, the relative affluence of the communities. They've adjusted for the crime rates or other things. But clearly, that's not enough because houses are worth what people are willing to pay for them. Now, is it possible that home buyers are themselves racist, that they'd rather live in predominantly white neighborhoods than predominantly black neighborhoods? That's possible. And if that's possible, if homes in white neighborhoods are more desirable than homes in black neighborhoods, then people are going to be willing to pay more money to buy those homes. That's possible. But it's not the appraiser's fault. The appraiser isn't a racist. It's the home buyer that's racist. Although my feeling is probably blacks may be equally as willing to pay higher prices to buy homes in white neighborhoods as whites, right? So there may be other factors that are motivating making these white communities a more desirable place to live than these black communities. And therefore the real estate prices are higher. There can be factors having nothing to do with racism if blacks are themselves expressing the same preference and are willing to pay extra to be in these neighborhoods. But in the meantime, the fact that there are bargains to be had in these black neighborhoods is a positive if you are in the market for a home in one of those neighborhoods and anything the government does to artificially drive up those prices uh, will just uh, negate that benefit. But of course, if the government ends up forcing uh, the banks to inflate the value of appraisals in black neighborhoods and just pretend that these houses are just as valuable as the ones in white neighborhoods, all we're doing is setting up the banks for huge losses when they ultimately have to foreclose on these properties because the borrower doesn't pay. And then when they have to sell the property, they're going to get the actual value. You can't go to the buyer and say, look, you know, you got to pay more uh, because, you know, because we got to we got to combat racism. 
No, I mean, when you go to sell the property, you're going to get the actual market price, not some pretend price. You know, you can't just pretend the house was in a neighborhood that it's not in. It's in the neighborhood where it is, right? Location, 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 right? That's the three most important things in, in, uh, in real estate. And if a house is in a location where the values are low because that's the most the buyers will pay, then that's what's going to happen. So all we're going to do by getting the government more involved is create bigger problems. But now you have this trend going on where everything that you can find, right, where there's a disparity uh, and you can link it to race somehow, it's now a proof of systemic racism. In fact, one of the articles that I read, I think it was that Bloomberg article, specifically referenced George Floyd and basically said, look, it's just like with George Floyd and the cops. The cops killed George Floyd. They're a bunch of racists. And these appraisers are underappraising uh, black homes, costing blacks hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in home equity, right? It's all being stolen from them, just like uh, George Floyd was murdered uh, with a knee on his neck. So this thing is going to keep gaining momentum, and people are afraid to push back against this narrative because if they do, well, they're accused of being racist themselves. Anyway, now I want to devote the rest of this podcast to my thoughts on the so-called debate that we had last night uh, between President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. First of all, if I had to pick a winner, I would say that the winner, and again, I don't even like to use that word, the person who did not lose the debate was Joe Biden. And not that I thought that he necessarily did any better than Trump. It's just that he didn't do as bad as a lot of people thought in comparison to Trump, right? And, and that's a win, right? Because the expectations were so low for Biden that I think he was able to exceed them only because Trump did a lot worse than I think people believe too. So Trump did worse than people thought and maybe Biden did as bad or not quite as bad. Look, Biden made it through the entire 90-minute debate. He didn't pass out, right? He didn't slur his speech, right? He didn't forget his lines or something or where he was. I mean, the bar was very low for all Biden had to do, right? Just not completely screw up, right, is what he had to do to be able to disprove the fact that he's completely senile. So I think he won. And I think if you look at the early polls and you look at the betting numbers, uh, so far, uh, Biden has gained some ground as a result of this debate. Now, remember, there's still two more coming. Uh, so the president has time uh, to turn this around. Remember, I thought his debate the best debate he did, I think, with Hillary Clinton was the second debate. I thought he did a great debate. I think that's the one that really uh, helped his cause and may have been the one that really pushed him over the edge. So I think the president could step it up in the second debate, assuming that Biden doesn't just cancel it and claim, look, you know, he interrupted too much. He didn't respect the rules. What's the point of debating him? I did it once. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he backed off of the other debates. And just figured, look, I won one. That's it. Why take any chances? Because I don't think there's any more upside for Biden because I think he's the front runner. I think if there's no more debates, uh, I think he's, he's a winner on, on that. So uh, he may be able to try to weasel out of it, blaming Trump and, and, and blaming Trump's conduct, even though, look, uh, Biden did a lot of interrupting himself. He's telling the president to shut up and be quiet or whatever he was saying. I mean, probably one of the only good things that happened at the debate. I mean, you know, Donald Trump made me laugh a couple of times. I had a couple of good lines in there about Joe Biden's masks and how big his masks are that he wears, 
or the fact that if Joe Biden had a rally, only three people would show up. So, I mean, at, at least they had a bit of a sense of humor, but really you need a lot more than a sense of humor to, to sit through that 90 minute debate. But I think that Trump clearly came across as more of the aggressor in the campaign, uh, in the debate rather. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if Biden uh, tries to get out of it. But, you know, the big problem with the debate is that there really wasn't much of substance to actually debate because you have two candidates that believe in big government. That's the problem. The libertarian candidate who believes in small government, she's not there, right? And, and so you have two big government candidates debating what? I mean, you know, they, they agree on all the, the big stuff. So it, it really just becomes, you know, name calling, ad hominem attacks, right? This guy, you know, Biden was last in his class. I mean, you know, he's dumb. Don't vote for him. He wasn't first. He was last. And, you know, Biden said, you're the worst president in the history of the country, right? It's that they're just insulting each other and going back and forth. There was no real substantive discussion about the economy. I mean, the only substantive discussion actually came from Biden when he talked about the trade deficits, that that was the only real thing on the economy. Biden was correct. He pointed out that the trade deficits are bigger now than they were before Trump uh, was elected, that we have a bigger deficit with China now than we did before he was elected, that we have a bigger deficit with Mexico now than we did before he was elected. So he was right that, you know, and, and Trump ran promising to reduce those deficits and instead they grew. And But Trump ignores that and continues to campaign as if he was a candidate as if the last three and a half years didn't really happen, except when he wants to pretend that we had the greatest economy in the history of the world uh, before COVID and that he was forced to turn it off because of COVID. But other than that, you know, he's still making promises uh, that he can't deliver. The most important one being Obamacare, repeal and replace. Remember, when Donald Trump was a candidate, he promised to repeal and replace Obamacare with something better. What was I saying at the time when Trump was running? I said he can never do that. He should just be promising to repeal Obamacare and replace it with nothing. We need to replace it with capitalism, with the free market. But Donald Trump repeatedly made a promise that it was impossible to keep. He promised to repeal Obamacare, but to continue to provide the protection for people with pre-existing conditions so that anybody with a pre-existing condition could still buy uh, their health care at the same price that they could have bought it before they had a pre-existing condition, which I said was impossible. And so now Donald Trump is still pretending that he's repealed and replaced Obamacare when he has not. He brags about the fact that he got rid of the individual mandate, uh, which he did. But without the individual mandate, how do you force people to buy insurance when they're healthy? You can't, you know. And so Trump is defending the indefensible. But politically, he doesn't want to come out and tell the truth that health insurance is insurance, right? The, the whole concept of insurance has to do with insuring against an outcome that is unlikely to actually happen. But if it does happen, it's very expensive. That's why you can buy insurance, right? Think about automobile insurance. Are you probably going to get into an accident? Probably not. You're probably not going to have an accident. But if you do have an accident, it could cost you a lot of money. So you buy the insurance hoping you're never going to need it. And based on statistics, you probably won't need it. 
And because you're probably not going to need the money, the insurance company is willing to sell you the policy. And where does the insurance company get the money to pay out the claims of the people who have accidents? Because so many people pay premiums and don't have accidents. That's why. Now, if you could wait until your car was already in an accident and then call up and buy your policy and they couldn't discriminate against that pre-existing condition, meaning you, your car is already totaled, right? And now you're trying to buy insurance, right? If you could just buy insurance after the fact and nobody would buy insurance until they needed a claim, but then there would be no money to pay the claims. The companies only have money to pay because all the people without the pre-existing condition bought insurance. And the only reason they did it is because they knew if they waited until they had an accident, they couldn't get the policy. Now, of course, does automobile insurance cover gasoline? No, it doesn't cover your gasoline because you're going to need gasoline. You have to buy gasoline to operate the car. You don't buy automobile insurance that's going to cover your gasoline. What would happen if automobile insurance did cover gasoline? Well, gas prices would go through the roof. Why? Well, if your insurance policy included all your gas, would anybody shop around for cheap gas? No. Would anybody do self-serve? No. And everybody would go full serve. Everybody would take premium. Nobody would get the cheaper gas. I mean, it all costs the same. What difference does it make? The insurance company is paying for it. And in fact, all the gas stations, they would know that no one gives a damn what gas costs because nobody's paying for it. So the prices would go way up. That's why insurance doesn't cover your gasoline. It doesn't cover routine maintenance. You're supposed to pay for that. The insurance is for the big expense. You get in a big accident, you smash up your car, or your car gets stolen, the whole thing is gone, and now you need a, a lot of money, which you might not have. So you buy insurance. Well, that's how health insurance is supposed to be. You're supposed to buy the insurance in case you get sick with something really bad. It's not supposed to cover your checkups like it does now. I mean, it's not even supposed to cover childbirth, right? I mean, why would your insurance cover your pregnancy? I mean, you get pregnant on purpose, right? Why should an insurance company cover something that you're doing intentionally, right? I mean, insurance doesn't cover cosmetic surgery. If you want, you know, breast implants, an insurance company is not going to pay for that. So if you decide to have a baby, why should the insurance company pay for that? They didn't pay for that in the past. My, my mom and dad didn't have any insurance that covered the cost of my birth, and it was cheap back then. And in fact, I think my mom was in the hospital for a couple of weeks and paid for it. It wasn't expensive. You stayed in the hospital for a long time in the 60s and 50s when you got a baby. Now you're out the next day. Only way you can stay there for three days is if you do a C-section. Now, yes, insurance should cover complications of pregnancy, right? That are very, something unexpected happens. Oh, your baby was born premature, needs to go into an incubator, or it has some other problem. And now the pregnancy costs a lot more. Okay, insurance could kick in for that. But it shouldn't just pay for a standard birth. But because it does, it costs so much more to have a baby now than it did when people were actually paying for it, right? This is a, a function of overutilization of health care insurance. And this is because of the government, because the IRS, the government says, if your employer pays you money and then you buy insurance, you have to pay taxes on the money. But if they give you insurance instead of the money, it's tax-free. So the, the government is the reason that so many people are overinsured and get their insurance through their employer. You don't get your auto insurance. You don't get your homeowner's insurance uh, from your employer. So nobody has a problem. You don't have out of control uh, costs in these areas where costs are spiraling out of control is in healthcare because of the overutilization of insurance. So what Trump should have promised is free market capitalism. I'm going to get rid of 
Obamacare. And we're going to make insurance less expensive, right, by separating it from employment, letting people shop around and letting people have more major medical that pays for the, the things that are really going to break you, not your routine medical care. But no, Trump wants to pretend that we could all have something for nothing. As he's criticizing Biden for wanting socialized medicine, that's what he's prescribing himself. He keeps saying that we're going to protect people with pre-existing conditions. Okay, well, then you don't have private sector health care. You don't have health insurance. Health insurance is all about discriminating against the sick. You can't let sick people buy insurance at the same price that healthy people pay or no healthy people will buy it. And without the healthy people buying insurance, there's no money to pay for the people who get sick, right? So Trump, unfortunately, as I said from the beginning, made promises that was impossible to keep. And now he's saying the same thing. Now he's actually, he's still promising to repeal and replace Obamacare or claiming that he's done it when he hasn't. And maybe if you reelect me, I'll do it. Well, it, it doesn't ring true now. I mean, even less true than it did before. So I think it looks ridiculous him trying to repeat the same promises that he made to get elected. He's had four years and he hasn't done it. And he's actually pretending in a way that he's done it when he's done nothing. Yes, he eliminated the, the mandate, but he left the pre-existing conditions. So he actually took Obamacare and made it worse. And ironically, you know, the only reason that Obamacare was not declared unconstitutional, and it should have been declared unconstitutional, but it wasn't. But what gave some of these justices the reason that they said it was constitutional was that they said it wasn't a mandate to buy insurance. It was just a tax. And the reason it was a tax and not a mandate was because the tax was so low that it didn't actually compel anybody to buy insurance. In other words, the reason it was constitutional was because it didn't work. See, the problem with Obamacare is that the penalty for not buying insurance was too low. It needed to be much higher because the penalty was so low, it was cheaper to pay the penalty than buy insurance. And then when you get sick, well, then you can get the insurance. So that's what a lot of young people did. I'll just pay the penalty. It's cheaper than buying insurance I don't need. See, the reason healthy people need insurance is because they might get sick and they know that they can't buy it if they are sick. But the reason they buy it when they're healthy is because they know if they do get sick, they can't buy it. But once the government says, no, just you can you can buy it when you're sick. Well, then why the hell should I buy it now? I'll just pay this small penalty. The penalty should have been a lot higher. But then, of course, Obamacare would have been far less popular if there was a penalty that can actually work. And because the penalty was too low to work, the Supreme Court said it was constitutional. Ironically, if the penalty would have been high enough to actually force people to buy health insurance, then it would have been rendered unconstitutional because the government can't force you to buy a product, but apparently they can tax you uh, and, and that's what made it constitutional. But regardless of that, I still think the court was wrong and maybe they would have come up with another excuse to validate it had they not been able to use that one because I think the Supreme Court was looking for a way to validate it and that's the, the, the method they chose. And maybe if that wasn't available, maybe they would have tried uh, some other way to justify an obviously unconstitutional program. Now, of course, Biden uh, did his share of ducking questions. He did get a question on uh, whether or not he would support packing the Supreme Court or ending the filibuster. And he did not give an answer to that question. He just completely dodged it. Donald Trump called him out on it. Uh, but we did not get an answer on that. Of course, that's exactly what he's planning on doing. Uh, he doesn't want to come out now and say that he's opposed to it. 
and then immediately be in favor of it once he gets elected. So he just dodged the question. Another question that he dodged was on his support for the Green New Deal. And I thought there um, there's some material that I think the Trump campaign could use because on the one hand, he defended the Green New Deal. He said that the Green New Deal will pay for itself, right? Donald Trump was talking about how expensive the Green New Deal would be. And Biden said, no, 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 the Green New Deal pays for itself. In other words, the Green New Deal is actually going to impose efficiencies on the economy that will exceed the cost of the New Deal program, right? And so, in other words, we will be better off if we have the Green New Deal. That's what he said, right? That's what it means by it'll pay for itself, meaning it's not going to cost us anything because whatever it costs to implement it, it will be offset by the gains that we derive from the implementation. So once he said that, then Donald Trump came in and said, oh, so you support the Green New Deal then? And then Biden said, no, 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 I don't support it, which makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, if you think it will pay for itself, then why not support it? I mean, we're going to get it for free, right? Paying for itself means it doesn't cost anything. It creates more value than, than the cost of the program. So if you really believe that the Green New Deal pays for itself, then why don't you support it? I mean, the reason he doesn't support it is because he lied. He knows that it it's not going to pay for itself. But he didn't want to be on the record as saying he supports the Green New Deal because of all the lousy things that are in the Green New Deal. That now Trump would be able to hang around his neck like an albatross and say a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for all this nonsense. But of course, Joe Biden, now that he said he didn't support it, how is that going to fly with a lot of his far left supporters that he inherited from Bernie Sanders or, you know, the people that follow AOC and the rest of the squad who, you know, love the Green New Deal? Now the their standard bearer, their candidate uh, has said he doesn't support it, even though he thinks it's going to pay for himself. That's not the soundbite that they're going to focus in on. It's going to be the fact that Biden came out and said he does not support uh, the Green New Deal. But really, you know, more important than the petty stuff that they argued over was all the big picture stuff that wasn't even discussed, right? Nobody discussed the Federal Reserve, artificially low interest rates, higher inflation, exploding budget deficits, the exploding national debt. I mean, there wasn't even a question. What are you going to do about the national debt? I mean, because obviously nobody's going to do anything about it. But why not a question? I mean, why not put these questions, I mean, to to Donald Trump? Because, you know, Donald Trump promised that, hey, he was going to get rid of the debt. Well, well, obviously he didn't do that. I mean, why doesn't Biden call him out? Because, of course, Biden doesn't want to call out Trump on big deficits because his deficits will be even bigger. So nobody wants to talk about it. But why wouldn't the moderator uh, at least interject that 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 comment? I mean, really, there was no real discussion of the economy at all, despite the fact that we're really in the worst economic environment that we've ever been in. Now, of course, Biden simply wants to blame the whole recession on Trump's policies. Like, you created this uh, recession, it's your fault, which is not the case. I mean, if you're simply saying it's because of COVID, how are you blaming COVID on Trump? In fact, I would say that the Democratic governors which locked down the states are, are far more responsible for the damage in their states than President Trump. I don't really know what Biden would have done differently had he been president or what Hillary Clinton would have done had she been president. Um, 
But even if we had federally mandated lockdowns and some federal mandated mask wearing, I don't think it would have made a difference. But I do think what did make a difference was the willingness of the Federal Reserve to subsidize this, the willingness of Congress and the president to bail everybody out. That made the cost-benefit analysis skew in favor of benefit. A lot of these governors were willing to do things to destroy their own economies because they were expecting bailout money uh, from the U.S. government and the Fed. If they knew that that rescue money wasn't coming, if the Fed had made it clear that money is not going to be printed to artificially stimulate the economy, so if you shut down a business, then that businessman is not going to have any revenue. You know, uh, the rent is not going to get paid. The uh, salaries are not going to get paid. And that means all the people who no longer get those salaries are going to have to do without them, right? Don't think that the government is going to make up the difference because the government is broke. The government has no money. And we're not just going to print money to replace the money that people are no longer earning. Because when people are earning money, they are adding value to the economy. They are producing goods or supplying services. If they're sitting at home on Netflix, shopping on Amazon, what services are they providing? None. What goods are they producing? None. So you can't just print money to replace actual work. All that is is inflation, and that's what we had. But I think because everybody expected a bailout, nobody really saw the costs of what they were doing. They just looked at the benefit. Well, the benefit is fewer people get COVID. Okay, well, what's the cost of fewer people getting COVID? Nothing, right? Because the federal government's going to make everybody whole. But if you had to weigh the, the, the benefit against the cost, the, the economic damage and the health threat that that represented, you know, it's not just all dollars and cents. I mean, people died, people got sick because of the economy that we experienced because of the lockdowns. There were people who didn't go to the hospital who should have gone, right? But they didn't because of uh, they, they were quarantined or people got, you know, drank too much or ate too much, or there were a lot of health issues. Maybe more people committed suicide uh, because of uh, what we did. So it wasn't all about dollars and cents, but the problem was there wasn't enough cost analysis because of the the, the bailouts that were offered uh, by the U.S. government and by the Federal Reserve. But the problem was we have some serious economic problems in this country. We are on the verge of a massive uh, economic collapse. But you would know that from watching that fiasco last night. I mean, I really wish I could debate either one or both of these guys. I mean, I could just mop the floor with either candidate. I mean, it's just, I mean, I mean, they're, they're both such easy targets too. I mean, there's so many inconsistencies in what both of them say. And I wouldn't have to resort to name calling. I don't care, you know, whether they finish first place or last place or whether their son is, you know, getting bribe money from Russia or... You know, none of this stuff even matters. I would just go after them on the on the fundamentals, on the inconsistencies of their own statements and their own policies and why what they're trying to do is bad for the country. What Biden wants to do is bad. What Trump wants to do, what he's been doing is bad. Again, on a scale of the lesser of the two evils, you know, Biden will do more damage than Trump. Trump is not as bad as Biden, but there's a big difference between not being as bad and being good, right? I want a good president. I don't want a president who just pretends to be good. And what really irritates me is you have so many Republicans that pretend that they really have a champion in Donald Trump. 
that he's really the ideal, that he's like a Ronald Reagan or Barry Goldwater or, or Ron Paul. He's nothing like those people. <laughs> it's just that if you compare him to Hillary Clinton or Biden, he's all right. So he's not as bad as they are. But I mean, is he any better than Bush, either Bush 41 or Bush 43? Well, is he any better than Richard Nixon? I mean, what what's he doing? Right? He hasn't done anything to change the, the game, right? He hasn't drained the swamp. He hasn't shrunk government. He hasn't reformed the Fed. In fact, one of the things that Trump talked about, again, was the stock market and how important the stock market is. When Trump says, look, the stock market's up, and he starts talking about how the stock market is the economy. Well, that wasn't what he said as a candidate. As a candidate, he said, forget about the stock market. It's a bubble. Right. He was right then. Now it's a bigger bubble. So we should we should now uh, talk about the stock market as a measure of his success, even though it's a bigger bubble now than the bubble that he was criticizing uh, that existed under Obama. No. So, I mean, all of the the ideals that Trump ran on that excited a lot of people. Why are those people still loyal to the president, even though he has failed to deliver on every promise that he's made. And at the same time, he pretends that he's kept every promise when he hasn't kept any of them. Again, I said the only thing that he's done right was appoint Supreme Court nominees that clearly they're not going to be as bad as the ones that Hillary would have appointed. And they're not going to be as bad as the ones that Biden will appoint if he has the chance. And hopefully he doesn't. Hopefully he's not able to enlarge and then pack the court. Uh, because again, that is our last defense. The one good thing Trump could do before he leaves office is make sure to put a justice on that court that has at least a shot of enforcing the Constitution and stopping uh, the Biden socialist agenda dead in its tracks. 